Sam. And I'm Birdie. This is History Between Bites podcast. The podcast where we talk about your favorite foods and where they come from. Today's episode is our first ever combo episode. I'll tell you all about the history of marinara sauce. And I'm going to explain the history of Italian herb blends. And then we'll sample two recipes using Italian marinara and Italian herb blend. One from antiquity. And one kind of sort of from today. So get comfy, grab a snack, and let's get ready for history, history between, between bites. bites. <laughs> Whoops. We'll get better at that um, once we figure out the visual aspect of this remote thing. I need um, uh, I need a camera that actually fucking works. This guys. is this is true. Also, I love that it's uh, in our intro. It's the first ever combo episode. This is our third time recording this, so this it's, feels it feels like we're veterans of of combo episodes now which is hilarious yeah it's our third time recording it but our first time you guys will be hearing it and probably not the last time we'll combine two topics that don't have a lot but have enough that they can't be standalone episodes well and there's a there was there's a reason for us putting these two together today we're not going to let them in i'm sure they can guess it already but there's a reason why we're doing marinara and herbs together oh yeah so oh, bef- before I forget, because yeah. I think I've forgotten on the like last two, three episodes, shout out to our very first patron ever, Matt. He's one of our, our beloved fans. Yes, I'm we so actually- excited. <laughs> Not only do we have a Patreon, but we have a really good one. Yeah, he's he's great. He's phenomenal. I get feedback on every episode. He listens on time, every time. Matt, you're the best. He Thanks even so heard the... um. Uh- incorrectly published tomato episodes so i apologize for that nonsense matt but um thank you thank you for listening and continue to listen he was like yeah i just think that the editing was a little weird but it was a good episode and i was like thank you because yeah, really the, the the editing was half done <laughs> okay we have a remote situation today because we cannot for the life of us figure out how to record in person with decent sound quality so here we are say, without it being a complete shit show today is only half a shit show yes only half a shit show well and you know it's a learning curve I feel like so much of starting something new especially in the podcast world is like you could only research so much before you have to just like sit down and hit that record button um so yeah I don't know it's we'll get there <laughs> it'll get sound better <laughs> sound engineering isn't one of my like special interests TM so it's really hard for me to like sit down and just read articles on it even though I know it's something it's like when I'm trying to do things in like my history class or or more specifically <laughs> my religions class from last term where I was just like screaming <sighs> at the top of your lungs about all the misinformation about Jews oh my god <laughs> it was so bad it made for really really good like afternoon lunch talks though with you so that was oh. fun oh yes and it's so funny sorry it's so funny to see a non-Jew get so worked up about things like I do as well, but like, I just hate I, misinformation. I like, yeah, well, that too. But I was just like, "Yep, that's uh, that's how it goes." Welcome to academic Jewry by non-Jews. Intro level Jewry. <laughs> I saw somebody making the comment in an academic setting that Jews do not use the name of God, um, but Christians are fine with using it as Yahweh. And I'm like, even 
like yes i know that there's the whole the whole thing with the four letters and whatever then that gets transliterated into like english and, well, and they it pronounce was... it as yahweh yeah but like the only time that jews talk about yahweh is in the context of the hypothesis theory the source hypothesis series uh theory which says that the old testament the hebrew bible tanakh torah all the words that you want to use for it was compiled from four main sources one of those sources is the yahwistic source um and that's a linguistic issue because the name of god one of the the sort of telltale signs of that particular source in the hebrew bible or torah is that the term that they use for god is yahweh it's literally only in the bible though and like not it would never be translated as yahweh though it's translated as like lord or sovereign which would be like Baal, and it was or um be, well that's master right yeah yeah no um well adonai is sovereign Mm, sort of Melacha Olam, sort Adonai is blessed are you, just God, really? Because I thought Mala- it was ble- I thought it translated my JPS translation uh-huh. has it as blessed, blessed are you, O Lord, and then it's yeah. So Adonai would be Lord, and then Melacha Olam would be King of the um Olam is world or like King of the Universe is kind of how it's translated, but also like literally, <laughs> I think means King of the World. Yeah, Melech Olam, <laughs> king of the universe, um, or sovereign, right? Melech is is literally king or or sovereign. So you guys, then, you get some like you get a little bit of, of jewelry with your food podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a little Italian, a little Jewish. It's you know, tomato, tomato, <laughs> sort of. Unless of course you're talking about World War II, and then very different. But yeah, um, then you just sprinkle in some good old fashioned Spanish fascism. Oh, which yeah. makes the golden age of jewelry look real weird in context, like yeah, long and, historical context. And then you just realize at the end of the day, everybody's hanging up their pork, including including the fascists. <laughs> yes, that was a Mussolini joke. Oh my God. <laughs> just saying. Um, that's hilarious. So also, I was having this conversation with a friend of ours about confusing milk and bread in hebrew and i have figured out why i confuse it and i'm going to double check this before i make an ass of myself yes so milk in hebrew is halav okay and bread is lechem okay 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 not only that not are they like close enough to already be like lechem halav like okay fine it's all laws and chaz however I'm thinking leche. Yes, I live in Southern California, and I'm like leche, lechem. Got it. And I'm like shit. No, because we say hamotzi leche, which is bread. And then I'm like, well, so then what the fuck is halav? And I'm like, right, because halav sounds like hala, like, which sounds fuck- like the fucking bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> I'm like you fuckers. <laughs> what are you doing to my brain? So, anyways, um, the the note there is that I get to think in three different languages, and that sounds smart, but it's not. <laughs> It's just me you're being like this, you're like okay i kind of see where people that move to a country <laughs> where they have to learn a new language this is why they all say that they feel like idiots for like the first year and a half or two yeah, because no one wants a thres lechem cake <laughs> it's a three bread cake i don't know if you stacked like challah and 
babka and like cinnamon milk, roll like a cinnamon roll that would be delicious <laughs> yeah i'm okay with that that'd be that'd yeah be good good yeah okay also i had um the most delicious lunch today and i'm going to post it on the on the instagram because it's perfect because i was reading i was going back through this episode's notes adding a few things to it and um I decided to make a sandwich and I made a BLT, but I made like an Italian BLT, which is not the same as the Subway one because that's gross. Um, Subway, be a sponsor. Um, no, we don't it, need your money. <laughs> this is true. So sourdough toast, beef bacon, because yes, um, Roma because, tomatoes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Roma tomatoes, which by the way, I read that the Roma tomato, the genetic base of a Roma tomato is a San Marzano. <laughs> But a Roma tomato is not a San Marzano. My God. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, so as close as I could get in a supermarket here to a San Marzano, which, of course, we talked about later in the episode. And then I did mixed greens and I added micro basil, olive oil, balsamic vinegar, salt, pepper, and Italian herb blend to that as like I dressed it with all that. Threw it on sourdough with a little bit more balsamic glaze and Parmesan cheese. And I know that it's not kosher because meat and cheese, whatever. But oh my gosh, I was like, we should never eat an American BLT ever again. No. Mostly because fuck mayo. But, and pork. I mean, homemade mayo is fucking amazing. Like, I love making my own mayo. Because you can use like different. Pretty and light and like actually looks like mayo and not whatever happens in the store and not glue (laughs) yeah although i did get a vegan mayo um i haven't tried it yet but that's on the list of things to um bastardize some i can't i just need to see the the ingredients list it's pretty much just oil it's just like what do they use for the protein that like emulsifies i don't know but at the end of the episode after i'm not comfy already (laughs) i can go check it's like right there so nice Fair, fair, fair. Okay, so um, should we start the episode? Yes, yes. Um, okay, so we wanted to, here we are again, talking about marinara and tomatoes. So on episode four, when I talked about tomatoes, again, I really stuck to the fruit itself, the movement of the fruit, a lot more on the sort of historical, older side of the fruit's history. And I stayed away from the ways in which we find tomatoes into certain dishes, right? With marinara kind of being a a staple of tomatoes. Um, So we wanted to talk about marinara sauce. So, because it has, right, it has a similar history. It's from the tomato, but it really has kind of its own story. So if we're going to talk about a marinara sauce, um, we have to begin with the San Marzano tomato, which I mentioned a little bit. So the San Marzano is the venus of all tomatoes completely unapproachable overly beautiful kind of terrifying and petty yes petty 100 percent, yes um and very very italian (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so the san marzano is a plum tomato it looks like a roma but it's a bit um uh longer and sort of uh slightly more pointed roma again the San Marzano is the base, the genetic base. So where science is going to come in, it's not my area. It's the genetic base of aroma tomatoes. So basically the idea was that they took a San Marzano and they crossbred it 
with other tomatoes here in the United States. And there you get the Roma. So it has that where there's a lot less seeds inside. It has more like flesh on the inside. It's more of a, a sort of unctuous. I think it's the word we use was like, it's an unctuous tomato, right? It's, it's, um, it's thick, <laughs> no, but like, it's, it's not, it's as... not quite as dick shaped as the San Marzano. <laughs> True. But even with the San Marzano, right? Like there's not as much seeds in it. There's a lower water content. So it's not going to be like your off the vine ones where like you cut into it and half of your cutting board is just going to be covered in tomato guts, which I'm not complaining about, but with the Romas and with the San Marzanos, it's definitely a drier, I guess, um, tomato. I mean, on a good heirloom. So like we've mentioned my friend Tara on the show a couple of times her homemade, like her homegrown tomatoes, mm-hmm. they didn't leave tons of juice and guts on the board because they were really fresh. Mm-hmm. So when your your tomatoes from the grocery store are doing that, it's because they've undergone, undergone I can talk, undergone mm-hmm. things like refrigeration and going through heat cycles and things like that. And that might not make them rotten or unusable, but it does affect the flesh on the inside. Well, and it it's like this softer, I guess. Like, you know, if you go to the store and we all pretend like we know what we're doing when we're squeezing all the produce to figure out which one is the um, the fresh ones to buy. <laughs> Nobody really knows what they're doing, just so we all know. The uh, only person I know that knows what they're doing is Hannah. And it yeah. is wild to go to the store with her because <laughs> she'll like sniff it like a fucking sommelier and she'll mm-hmm, squeeze mm-hmm. them just right or she'll knock on the melons and she's yeah. like, oh, this is a good one. And I'm like, how do you yeah, I love no. food? How do you know yep. that? No, uh, the melon one is so funny to me because it's like, first you want to look at, you want to knock on it because if it sounds hollow, then it's juicy. Then you want to look at the striations on it, right? So if it looks like it's been clawed at, all of a sudden, like somehow that means bee pollination. And so you're like, ooh, lots of bees touched this one. You're like, I don't know what that means, but okay, I guess it's good. And then a lot of people tell you to look at its butthole. And I'm like, in the store, <laughs> like in front of everybody. <laughs> yes. And I know, I don't know what I'm looking for, but they're always like that the butt of the melon is where you got to look. And I'm like, but are you going to tell me what I'm looking for? Because really, I'm just staring at a melon ass. <laughs> if you're looking at the at the yellow place that's where it sat and like i think it's that if the yellow is like on a darker is like on the darker end of things then mm-hmm. that means that it has more of a sugar content but i need to check Got that it. because again i have no fucking yeah, idea no, nobody nobody knows i don't know hannah i know that you listen tune Probably. in send an yes. email send a text message tell us what the fuck we're looking for at the grocery store um but the <laughs> the roma tomatoes that i have are very firm right they feel almost like you might can think that they were not ripe yet because they're firm, but they're the perfect color. So they're definitely ripe. You just beam them at somebody's head. If they don't squish, they're fine. Absolutely. If they squish, then you're definitely in the French Revolution and you have a reason to be pissed because they're rotten. Sorry, I'm a nerd. And the bread union is probably getting upset and then you're going to have the Jacobites. <laughs> it's going to be a whole thing. It is a whole thing. I cannot, I cannot wait to talk about the French Revolution and bread. But anyhow, it's it's butter and it's bread. That's what's that's I'm so excited. Um, but right, so the San Marzano tomato being the Venus of tomatoes, it's, it looks like aroma a little bit longer. Um, the San Marzano, so San Marzano is a place in between Naples and Salerno, and this is where the tomato gets its name because that's where it's from. What makes them special is the soil and the water in which they grow. So Naples is home to none o uh, none other than Mount Vesuvius. Yes, the one that killed Pliny the Elder in Pompeii. I can't even say that Vesuvius killed Pliny the Elder. 
Plenty the elder killed plenty the elder. This is just like like suicide by cop is <laughs> like suicide by Vesuvius. Yeah, I mean he was an idiot, right? Like suicide by idiocy. Yes, he just used a volcano. He did. He did. He was like, I'm going to get an up close and uh, image of this, and uh, it's going to be great. And even though a lot of people had evacuated, um, he he thought that he was not going to die. He was like, nah. Yeah. Or maybe he thought, I don't know. I don't know. Men. Uh, But yes. So (laughs) so Naples is the home to Mount Vesuvius. And this means that the soil is composed of volcanic ash. And it's this ash that is hailed as being the reason why the San Marzano tastes so good. Um, And it's because of the special balance of minerals that makes their way into the tomatoes. So quoting from 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World, which is um, apparently my new favorite book. (laughs) The eruption it's your new boo thing. It, it is. Um, the eruption, while a disaster for the 20,000 residents of Pompeii and Herculaneum, although not as much as one generally believes, some 90% of the population escaped, was an environmental blessing. As the planet, literally turning itself inside out, refreshed the land, the left, after centuries of weathering, regeneration, and pasturing, was a landscape ideal for growing, among other things, one particular variety of tomatoes whose impact two millennia after Vesuvius would spread further than the volcano's towering plumes of smoke. Again, this guy, I've read that 75 times for you now, <laughs> um, but this guy, I, I can't get over how he writes. It's such a good book. Um, he writes so well. Like he writes like the old school food, food journalists. He does. And a lot of it reads kind of like that. Like he's, it's a travel journal, food travel journal of sorts. But it has so much like academia in it, but none of the tone, which is great, especially as someone who either if you're not familiar with reading academ- academia, like you don't get that like, wow, this is boring. I don't know what I just read. And if you are familiar with it, it's not just another thing that you could read, right? Like, because sometimes we get academic inundate. tone has been my the bane of my fucking existence. Recently. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And I remember when I was done with my thesis i was like never ever ever again unless i'm being paid to do it because i'm teaching do i ever want to pick up an academic source again just because of you're just bombarded with it for so many years and now of course here i am being like oh i love it um i just need it we just need a little break but yeah he doesn't have any of that in the book which is which is lovely we were on a break (laughs) well 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 we were so yes um so how do we get from a volcanic eruption in 1779 uh, ce to the san marzano tomatoes of today part of the story is in the use and popularity of the tomato at large and we talked a little bit about uh, the slow growth of tomato popularity in italy when they first came over from the new world but uh, we also talked about the nail in the coffin of tomatoes that was the renaissance right wow. so yeah renaissance had the um idea that tomatoes were cold and wet which was feminine which is unhealthy yada yada and that really brought down the uh, consumption of tomatoes of course with the other things like it being related to hemlock and belladonna and things like that but it, it really was this idea of what is healthy to eat and what isn't healthy to eat that was based on hippocratic greek medical theory that was flawed and um stopped the tomato from being consumed right by a broader audience so after that at least it was pretty i guess it it, yes it was they did grow it to be pretty it's so decorative look at it 
It looks like it'd be great in a sauce, but I'm not going to eat it. Yeah, this is true. Oh. I do. Yes, yes, yes. I just that still drives me nuts because I'm like, how are you looking at this thing? And you're like, oh, this would be great in sauce. Oh, did you try it? I, no. Well, not only that, but like, how would you? How can you look at something and think it'd be great in a sauce without trying it? Like, even maybe by smell. Anyways, I'm sure it's because other people had tried it, but he was just like, you know, I'm a proper fryer and I don't put things in my mouth that I don't know where they've been. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. I'm a proper fryer. I don't put things in my mouth unless I know where they've been. That's why I keep them from baptism all the way up until... Let me just stop myself there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We are not going to confirmation that theory. So after the Renaissance, um, the Enlightenment is born, and it's in this period that the medical theories of Hippocrates and Galen are pushed out for more quote-unquote scientifically rooted theories. Um, Amongst those are Sir Isaac Newton and Carl Linnaeus. So it is a more scientific time. I wouldn't necessarily put it on par with what we're doing today, of course, but you definitely see a shift away from that's icky (laughs) and wet kind of things to trying to really put a scientific yeah trying to put more of a scientific um categorization on things now this is also the time when christianity in the time period is also dominant so you see kind of this it's more scientific but it's definitely still really fucking religious compared to what we would think of science today so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be like just culturally dominant it was also financially dominant Yes. Like each of these men is is funded by yeah. the church. Yeah, absolutely. And so Carl Linnaeus um, is often called the father of taxonomy. And he is <laughs> a fascinating fucking side quest. Um, so he was obsessed with categorization. Categorization? I can talk go. today. Particularly in the case of nature. So like this guy was obsessed with nature right and how to understand like just what do we what do we call stuff so every single plant that this guy encountered he wanted to you know categorize it into like you know a family and then names and yada 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 this was also go ahead oh i was just going to mention that he also posited on the theory of like microbes and he called them animalcules like they are little teeny tiny literally microscopic animals and he's like animalcules which is the most adorable name for them ever but yeah so he's obsessed with nature and he adopted a school of thought known as natural theology so the philosophy while rooted in the bible was the idea that since god created all things then the best way to study the nature of god was to study his creations and like if you can't see or touch or communicate with your creator in any way shape form or fashion like it's literally in the book that with very rare exception man is not going to be able to see the face of god or communicate with them or touch them or or even like interact with them on a personal level Mm -hmm. the best way to get to know somebody is through their works yeah like i'm never gonna meet the bard but i have read (laughs) an absurd amount of Shakespeare. And I have the feeling that having a pint with him would be incredibly fucking hilarious. Yes. And no, (laughs) I just think, yes, but also no. And I think that it is a really smart way to think about it. I think it's a very sort of um, 
it blends that like creativity and science and like trying to find answers to things because that's all humans have ever wanted to do. But I also think that there might be a flaw in looking at the art to try to understand the artist. Oh, yeah. Like, especially when you factor in things. And this is just kind of my off kilter side quest to the side quest. Um, Like when you build in things like commission and you build in different like when people are on mood stabilizers, they create different art than if they're on like not on mood stabilizers or on hallucinogenics or on depressants or on stimulants. Yeah. Or who's paying for it. Like that fundamentally changes art. Like someone can be really excited about something and then you show it to them and they're like, yeah, I'm sorry. That's too risque. Can you like cover that up? All of the horny Lucifer statues all over Italy. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then even just contemporary stuff, right? Like our generation fell in love with Harry Potter and here we are not so in love with JK. Right. And if you only look at the art, then you I mean, not to say that there wasn't a whole lot of hinting as to her ideology into Harry Potter, but we didn't necessarily see it. And so I don't know. I just think that there's it's smart. It's interesting. It's flawed. All at the same I mean, time to sort of have this um, this ideology of looking at. But if you're also thinking of the supreme, omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe, you're not going to have those very human ideas about like, but this artist could be flawed. So if you think you're looking at a perfect piece of art created by a perfect creator, then I can see where that comes into play. And it's not like the church at the time would have been like encouraging people to question. No. And even Judaism to some degree in certain communities wouldn't necessarily push you to think that God is not perfect, I guess. That's not my brand of Judaism, but it's also a newer brand of Judaism compared to the things that we talk about. So I'm good with saying that God is flawed and makes mistakes and apologizes and is kind of a dick. Kind of. (laughs) Kind of. He kind of comes across in the Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible slash Tanakh slash Torah as being a little bit of like a first-time parent who has no idea what they're doing. And uh, their only their only role model is their abusive shithead parent. Yeah, for sure. So they're like, and I'm like, trying to do better. And like, not only is he a first-time parent who had shit parents, but he's a young first-time parent. Oh yeah, he's like 16. Yeah, or yeah, uh-huh. He comes sure. across as like a 16-year-old that's trying to learn how to take care of a kid and he was a dumbass because he made babies but he made them in adult form so now adam and eve in all reality are fucking toddlers in grown-ass human form yeah it's hard to maintain a toddler in toddler form so yeah anyways that's that's my own anyway linnaeus we get this we did this last time to go on such a side tangent it's so funny but so he so linnaeus believes that it's his task as a naturalist to study the divine order of god's creation to create what he calls natural classifications that could reveal the order of the universe so high stakes how humans ended up being classified as fish (laughs) yeah yeah um but like high stakes here for him right it's not just about reorganizing the world and taking away these really really long unpronounceable latin phrases and trying to sort of co-opt them into easier dissectable things he's really trying to like understand everything so well the the long complicated latin names and phrases for these things come from his classification system that's why you have like yes daphylococcus 
SP, <laughs> which means Staphylococcus species. Yeah, yeah. Although before him, apparently it was even worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it was worse. Yeah, yeah. He just didn't really make it better. <laughs> no, he didn't. But um, so his classifications were often arranged by observing plant sex organs. And this is partly useful, but it's also like considered to have flaws in today's study of taxonomy and biology. Um, a quick look at how he talks about plants really gives you an insight to the philosophy and how he's on to something with the idea that plants do have a gender. But the way in which he talks about it is just a bit not. Uh, it's I'll just read it for you. So just, just read it. The flowers leaves serve as a bridal bed, which the creator has so gloriously arranged adorned with such noble bed curtains and perfumed with so many soft scents that the bridegroom with his bride must might there celebrate their nuptials with so great uh, a solemnity i butchered it a little bit but right like you get the idea so he's horny for flowers he is hella horny for flowers like he's 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 just horny for classification and then he's like and flowers have dicks <laughs> and uh, any plants that he um, observed that didn't have this, have a sort of uh, gendered marking, or it was hard to tell what the gendered marking was. So like algae doesn't have a gender the same way. Moss doesn't like reproduce the same way that other plants that are gendered do. Um, he would call them, uh, he put them in the classification of cryptogamia or plants with a hidden marriage. A weird side note here. It's so less funny the third time I tell you this story, but I was growing pumpkins and the plant, I laugh every time, so <laughs> no. don't even. The plant wasn't producing at the rate that I had wanted it to, right? So I ended up just having these like long um, vines, but there was no fruit on them really. And so I mean, basically the bees are sleeping on their job. So instead of waiting for nature to take its course, I manually pollinated my flowers. <laughs> you pumpkin fluffer, you. I <laughs> I am a pumpkin <laughs> fluffer, sure. I definitely made the plants fuck. I would... um. I would take the male flower and I would rub it into the female flower. Now you're like, okay, what the fuck? How do you tell the difference? Yada, yada. So the female flower of a pumpkin has a bulb at the base of the flower that looks like a little tiny itty bitty pumpkin. And that's because it needs to be fertilized to turn into a pumpkin, right? So you're like, sweet, got it. That's the egg flower. And then the male ones don't have that, but it goes even further because when you open up the flower, the female flowers sort of pollen arrangement is circular and has kind of an opening at the center and the male one is a tiny dick <laughs> like please google everyone what a the inside of a male pumpkin flower looks like it literally looks like a, a pollen penis and so google i would show it to your kids <laughs> yeah so i would just pull back those um the the curtains <laughs> that the creator so gloriously designed um, and just shove them together. And I got like 14 pumpkins that year. So <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I just plant the pumpkin fluffer. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was definitely creating some um, Halloween porn. <laughs> now pollinate. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, you know, so his sexy talk is, is sort of spot on, but it's just really intense um he's a he's really into this stuff he yeah really he, he is um so anyways back to tomatoes right it's not until 19 or sorry 1694 that we get the first tomato re uh, recipes out of naples again where the san marzanos are from but uh, and it's the the recipe that we used last time for 
the tomato sauce in the Spanish style from Antonio Latini, right? So we had put that together last time when we were doing um, the tomato episode before we did the pozole. And every time I was looking up the history of marinara, they credit this as like the first tomato sauce recipe and, you know, placing it again, 1694 in Naples, which is significant, except for the fact that this is not what we would consider tomato sauce, right? This is absolutely a salsa, right? So it's- It was a tasty salsa. Mr. Birdie loved it. (laughs) It was a very tasty salsa. And it's clearly- like this is sort of the inception of kind of where it begins, but I definitely wouldn't say like this is the first tomato sauce. But again, I'm sticking to what scholarship says. And this is the sort of the marking point for marinara that they have um, on sort of the the history timeline. So, you know, that's why we mentioned it basically. And we also mention it is because it's uh, from Naples, right? So along with the volcanic soil, um, sorry. It's from Naples, and this is where the San Marzanos are from. So the idea that the first marinara sauce, at least this one from Latini, most likely used a San Marzano or something very similar to it. So along with the volcanic soil, uh, locals will note the beauty of the San Marzano is also from the water source. And the water is from the Sarno River, and there's a huge discrepancy in my sources over what's going on with this river. So in 10 Tomatoes That Changed the World, he says that, so he describes the river as being so clear that you could read a book through it. He also notes how the locals seem to have like a cult-like love for the river, making note that one even said, if there's no Sarno River, there would be no San Marzano, volcanic soil or not. Um, archaeologists have also dug up some evidence that might have actually been a water cult there along the <laughs> Sarno River, which is also really interesting that clearly some of that kind of still remains. But the problem yeah. comes, <laughs> yeah, the problem comes when you Google images and information about the Sarno River outside of just this this one book. And the Sarno River is dubbed the most polluted river in Europe. <laughs> So I don't know what's going on, but at some point, that's the information I got. <laughs> I feel like it's probably downstream from where all of these people are talking about how beautiful the Sarno is. Like, well, oh, it's so beautiful. You can read a book through it. Don't go two miles downstream. Well, yeah. And because the everything that talks about the pollution, and believe me, there was a million articles on water composition and microbials and all sorts of things that, again, are so outside of my wheelhouse. Um, but they were talking about the main contributor to the pollution of the Sarno is the tomato industry. So I mm. am sure that it's it probably is this like runoff situation. Oh, it's literally don't go downstream. We have the most beautiful and amazing water. Yes. And then we dump all of our else. shit into the rest of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So in any case, the San Marzano tomato did not reach critical acclaim until 1910 when it quickly took over the fields of Campania which is that same region um, where it was known as red gold now the San Marzano did see a little bit of trouble post-world war one years but then the canning industry sort of saved it um, preserving those things Uh, and then world war ii there was um, a little bit of an issue with Mussolini where he (laughs) such a weird story so let me see if I can capture it's not in the notes here so 
New so story. Mus- New story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Mussolini was trying when he took over and eh, took over when he was um conquering, essentially, as he was spreading into North Africa, he was trying to bring with him like Italian culture and culinary things as well, right? Like he's trying to, you know basically Hellenized, right? But like Italianized as he goes, as conquest happens. But there was some issue, and I cannot remember it specifically, but there was some issue with the way in which pasta was made versus rice. And rice was a much easier staple to grow. And it was easier to sort of, you know, just in the middle of a war to feed your people with rice versus pasta. And so he really put this extra push on rice versus pasta. And of all the things that pissed off Italians in World War II, it was not his fascism, but his, like, proposed getting rid of pasta in place of rice. It is the most Italian thing I've ever heard in my life to be like, you can take our freedom, but you you cannot take our pasta. You cannot take our pasta. But part of that sort of bringing down trying to bring down the popularity of pasta of course brings down the popularity of things you put on pasta and tomato was one of those things that you put on pasta so there was a moment there but it was clearly did not last <laughs> again Mussolini did not last um so then in 1990 no, he didn't. yeah no he did not um in 1990 a disease almost wiped out San Marzano's altogether and it was at this time that people try not only tried to save the plant and did, but they also started to ask questions about what is the original San Marzano. And the issue was that it had been crossbred over so many years that scientists were trying, like people and scientists were finding it hard to figure out, like, if we're going to save this plant, we need to save the plant. We don't want to save sort of, you know, a crossbred version of it we want to get to the the origins of the plant and we don't want to save a lesser tomato. (laughs) Yeah, right. It sounds so weird to say it like this, but yes. So they even brought out scientists to study the soil and to fr- to find original variety of seeds in the soil, which is insane. Eventually, they dubbed two varietals certifiable as San Marzano, but there still remains a lot of issue over this real versus fake San Marzano stuff. Okay, and this whole section makes me certifiable. <laughs> yes, this is this is wild. <laughs> So this is the most convoluted issue that we have probably ever discussed together. And it is hilarious and obnoxious. And I think both of our eyes twitch, but Uh here goes. So the simplest explanation for how you figure out if a San Marzano, um, particularly a can of San Marzano's are authentic is with a two-part certification. So the first one needs to be the DOP seal on it, which is um, like a designated place of origin is the um is the seal so basically it's saying right if you have a dop seal on on a food product it means that the place in which that like that can or that jar is for sure from the region in which it says on the bottle so um the other thing is that you also have to have a consortium seal on it so the consortium is italy they're the ones who can certify the quality of the san marzano now the problem here is that the dop seal is only regulated by the eu so anyone outside of the eu can put a dop seal on it and it can't be regulated so not the best way um, it's not ideal <laughs> no it's not and then the consortium seal right is 
sort of a second barrier there. And that has a little bit more, um, seems a little more legit, I guess, because with those ones, you can turn the can over. You can see the canning date on there. You can also see which farm it's from. And so that seems to be maybe the better way to check for the authenticity of your San Marzano canned tomatoes. And it so also sounds we- like a sounds like a really good way to jack up the price on tinned tomatoes. Yes. But yeah, it's simple, right? So I got DOP on there. I got consortium seal. Good to go. Not There we go. I got myself a San Marzano, right? Super easy? No. <laughs> so, does it involve a government agency? It no. sure does. A couple of them. Yep, yep, yep. So Cinto, which is the most common brand of San Marzano sold in the United States, says certified San Marzano and have a DOP label on them. However, if you're in Italy, they would consider those to be fake San Marzanos which is super fucking confusing because they're from the Sarno Valley in San Marzano and are the same seeds as a San Marzano tomato. Oh, this is stupid. (laughs) Oh, this is so fucking stupid. So here we go again. (laughs) So I'm reading out of um, 10 Tomatoes to Change the World because I cannot simplify this in a way that makes sense. So I'm going to, I'm going to use Mr. Alexander's words here. So he says that he is in Italy. He's having this conversation. He wants to know what the fuck is going on. And so he sends an email to the head or, you know, of some department at, at Cento. And he's like, I'm expecting to have like a written letter back. That's like, basically go fuck yourself, whatever, in a couple of weeks. That's not what happens. He gets a phone call within 30 minutes to explain to him how San Marzano is or is not fake. So here goes. So the guy at Cinto says the dispute is over labeling, not the tomato. Labeling, you forfeit DOP status over a label? Indeed, even stranger, the dispute was over the label's use of the prohibited words, you'll never guess, San Marzano. So in oh my God. <laughs> yes. So in the early 2000s, the resurrected San Marzano tomato had become all the rage in America. It was featured on the Food Network, hyped in cooking magazines, and praised by top chefs everywhere. Cinto, to quote, take advantage of free publicity, replaced the consortium-approved and trademarked term S. Marzano on their labels with San Marzano, which is what everyone was calling them. The American shoot first and ask questions later strategy didn't sit well with the consortium. Which so wait, dem- wait, wait, pause. Hold yeah, on. yeah. They just called the thing by its fucking name. Yes. Yes. And that's what caused this whole nonsense. Yes, because the trademark for the tomato is S. Marzano. And so now they want to change it to the longer version of the name, San Marzano. And the consortium are like, nope, you can't call it what it really is. You have to call it what it really is abbreviated. (laughs) It gets so much better. So this could have been so much funnier. Okay. <laughs> this could have been so much funnier if somebody had shortened it to S Mars. Oh, because like then this whole fucking thing would have been even more ridiculous. Okay. Continue. And would have and would have pissed off a lot of chocolate company people. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. We could have gotten Mars yeah. company involved yeah. with this. And then and then we wouldn't know between an SM and an M M&M. and M. <laughs> oh yeah, because a tomato versus a chocolate are just that's something yep. a reasonable consumer could mix up. Yeah, all of which are like European white dudes fighting over something that both products come from the New World. <laughs> yeah, anyhow. The cell. 
in the new world. Yes. So it didn't sit well with the consortium and they demand demanded that Cinto change the wording back to S Marzano on all of their labels and marketing material. Cinto, which with millions already invested in the San Marzano name and convinced that the reverting to the shortened name was going to harm the sales, tried to convince the consortium that San was really the smarter way to go with an American public who might not know that in Italian, S is an abbreviation for San. Hey, Americans are real <laughs> stupid. We got to spell everything out for them. No, really, we got to spell everything out for them. There is a thing on our plastic bags that says this is not a toy suffocation hazard. There, <laughs> it has illustrations. There, there, <laughs> there are pictures on all of our heated hair styling tools that has a picture of a baby, and then has a picture of an eyeball, just the eyeball, and then underneath it it says caution, hot. <laughs> like our coffee cups have <laughs> caution hot on them. Yeah, I got into a debate with Topher about that though, because he seems to stand by the fact that. They do need that because McDonald's no, I, fucked up hard. I absolutely agree that they need that and that McDonald's fucked up hard. <laughs> but like, also, they were a cover your ass from McDonald's. And also, also, the American public is fucking stupid. Uh, yes, yes. And yes. <laughs> um, but yes. Okay. So San, as abbreviation for San, Americans don't know it, blah, blah, blah. Right. They didn't budge, he recalls, despite the fact that the use of S was on accident. The original DOP application was actually for San Marzano del Agro Cernis Nocerno. That's a little better. But at some point along the way, as the paperwork got shuffled from the Campania to the Italian Ministry of Agriculture to the EU, some paper pusher, probably sick of writing out San Marzano, casually substituted S for San, the equivalent in English of writing ST for Saint. Unfortunately... That's how the designation and the trademark were subsequently recorded in Brussels. And the difference is not a big, as big a deal if you're referring to jolly old San Nick, but if you're registering a trademark with the EU, apparently it's a big deal. What? <laughs> so, where's, where's that clip of Ronald Reagan going, I'm from the government and I'm here to help? <laughs> oh, that's that makes me twitch. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. So S. Marzano, it was... And unable to get the consortium to overlook the American label, Cinto decided to strike out on its own, continuing to adhere with some tweaks to the DOP guidelines and hiring their own third-party agency, AgriCert, to, quote, certify that Cinto's products met Cinto's own guidelines. By I don't offering... know what those tweaks are. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Like, are they tweaks for, like... Oh, we can have basil in the canning process because that was a really nice addition when we made our yep. marinara. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, or is it like they can cut off parts and pieces that aren't like, are like imperfections or flaws that would disrupt the canning process? That is true. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't like if they can still reach that like DOP and, and, consortium certification process and they mm -hmm. just add it to that that's different than like but we're going to take out all of the like actual safety measures which sounds like some american shit anyways that is also true <laughs> yeah I, I mean it literally just says in parentheses with some tweaks so with some tweaks <laughs> yeah 
But also by offering a better crop price to the growers, they also took a good portion of the Sarno Valley farmers with them. And although some growers still grow for both Cento and Consortium canners, it really didn't leave a good taste in the mouths of Italy. Right? Maybe pay your farmers better. This is also true. So the consor- <laughs> it gets better, right? The consortium fought back, initiating two class action lawsuits in the U.S. federal court against Cento. Again, the tomatoes end up in federal court. Um, this is the second time. This is the second time. That's right. They initiated two class action lawsuits on behalf of U.S. consumers who had been tricked into their purchases by false and misleading labeling and advertising. So you have an Italian company who is taking an American brand to American court for American consumers. Something about that smells like bullshit. Yeah, they just don't want them doing it. So they don't give two fucks about the consumer. They want to make sure that they keep their monopoly on being able to call something San Marzano. But again, so here we go. S Marzano. Yes, yes, yes. S Marzano. Yes. So Cinto, the plaintiffs argued, could not possibly be selling, quote, certified San Marzano tomatoes because the consortium is the only entity which can certify and approve a San Marzano tomato. More damning, the suit also claims that not all of Cento's tomatoes are grown in the official Sarnese Nocerno region and that they do not meet San Marzano quality standards, assertions that Cento flatly denies. But it does say that they made some tweaks, so who knows? Um, okay, but you know what we call one agency or one <laughs> company that has complete control over like an entire process for an entire product? We call that shit a monopoly. Yeah. And we break them up. Yes, we do. Or we or we used to. That's Look also at, true. Looking at you, Time Warner Cable. You're at AT&T. Fucking SDG&E. Oh, yeah. That first. Sure. I mean, AT&T was broken up. SDG&E absolutely needs to be broken up. SDG&E uh, needs to be thrown into fucking Mount Vesuvius. Yeah, I'm really jealous. My neighbors got solar yesterday. Our, our landlady is looking at putting in solar, but it still hasn't happened. And I don't know if it'll happen before we leave. I'm yeah, I, I just I they said that we're eligible for free stuff because of our um, energy consumption. But I just need to contact the landlord. And I don't know. I'm like, I don't need eh, eh. she can come out whenever she wants. We're not hiding anything. But I don't know. It just makes me nervous to have the landlord in my house. No, I get it. Because when mine shows up, I get panicky, too. And I think for it's no reason. I, well, I think it's like because I grew up in the projects as a kid and like the state would come in and like investigate your house like unannounced for what to make sure that the people who you had listed living there were the people were the only people who were living there oh so they didn't give a shit about like your actual living conditions just the amount of people there yeah no i mean i guess if they saw like really bad abuse they would turn it into cps but no they just wanted to make sure that if like you're a single parent with two daughters that you don't have a live-in boyfriend because then that adds to the income of the household um, and then you can probably afford to go live in your own goddamn place and not live on subsidized housing. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Hmm. Anyways, welcome America. That's what it's like to grow up underneath the poverty line. Anywho. Um, okay. So in 2022, according to Cento, they shipped a recorded 1.5 million cases. That's 31.5 million pounds of their certified San Marzano products to America, which is more than the entire consortium canned. They can do this because they know that the average American consumer likely doesn't know of the DOP. And also the consumer has probably heard of San Marzano tomatoes. 
They also can do this because even though San Marzano's are generally more expensive, Cento sells cans in Trader Joe's and Walmart stores for about the same price as other imported plum tomatoes. Having been put on the defensive, the company has gone out of its way to legitimize its product to American consumers, even encouraging them via an app on their website to type in the code stamped on the can to see on Google Earth the, the actual farm that grew their San Marzano's. So basically trying to do something very similar to that consortium uh, stamp. So the first of two federal lawsuits brought by the consortium was dismissed in 2020 without a trial by a Long Island, New York judge who, not sympathetic to the EU's traditions or regulation, ruled in effect, quote, who died and made the consortium king? <laughs> not, not now go away before we throw your shit in the habit, too. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> not swallowing the plaintiff's contention that only the consortium could certify San Marzano's, the judge illicitly wrote that the court, quote, need not devote time to the plaintiff's claim regarding the minute differences alleged allegedly found between consortium tornadoes and Cento products. So, like, motherfuckers, this shit is the same. Get out of my courtroom. This is dumb. <laughs> Basically what he said. He really is. He's like, listen, we were built on British tradition. And you people are the wrong shade of white. No. Well, then we're just like, we, we don't have time for European semantics. We got to deal with our own. <laughs> we don't have time for European semantics. We literally have, never mind. We're not going to make that joke. Nope. Disregard. Nope. Yep. Disregard. Yep. <laughs> Abort. <laughs> Abort inappropriate joke. Um, <laughs> it's just a step too far, even for me. Yep. So the second lawsuit filed in California ended in a confidential settlement, which most certainly did not include the removal of the word certified San Marzano from the Cento labels. Um, and while Cento may have dodged the long arm of the law, it that's, did, a, that's it did, an interesting phrasing right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did not get away from the consortium members' hatred, basically. And uh, yeah, so that's just that that's what that's what's happening, right? And like it also says that like the consortium isn't also entirely blameless in all of this. If its members hadn't gotten their backs up against the new world interloper, perhaps they could have admitted to a mistake had been made to the original filing instead of waiting eleven years to change the trademark back to San Marzano. So this is it's so convoluted. So basically, like there's this issue with the label. They don't want them called san marzano's because the trademark says s and instead of at that moment going back and refiling the paperwork for the trademark to include san marzano they go through all this bullshit to fight separate out lose half of their farmers to an american company and then while that's still not working in their favor then they finally go yeah i guess we'll just change the the labeling then back to san marzano but you still can't be certified all I'm hearing is we need to pay our farmers better. Mm -hmm. We needed to swallow our pride just like a tiny bit. Yeah. I mean, it's capitalistic greed is what it is on both this sides, really, to, be, to be very yeah. honest. But yeah. It really sounds like an issue that like my husband was having at work is that there was a minor issue on a piece of like on a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And this could have been handled one of two ways. The way my husband handled it was... Let's fix the error and then just let the people that need to know know and push the fixed piece up mm -hmm. to where it belongs. Yep. Easy, done, takes the ego out of it. <laughs> the other way this could have been handled is how the consortium handled it, where it's like, 
how dare you assume that I made mm-hmm. a mistake? No, this is how we're doing it. And yeah. we are going to fight you in court. And oh God, you're, you're not someone we can bully in court. Yeah. Well, and like, don't get me wrong. Like America is not blameless either. Cause we're kind of no. a bunch of assholes. So no, it's amazing that I'm going <laughs> Italy. You need to pay your people better over an American company. Yeah. Cause yeah. Cause I'm, I'm like, sure they're not paying them well, but they seem to be paying them better than what they were making under if you're if you're able to drag people away from like literally home like home advantage loyalty yeah that says that something about their working conditions is even for an american company better than where they're coming from well and these farmers you're talking third fourth generation farmers on this land so these are people who have been on the land for many generations who have been farming for italy for many generations and have been like "Mm, sorry my dude got yeah, a better like, price from an american an american company which so, is just wild like it is. i'm sitting here going are they being paid and like did cinto sign <laughs> the contracts in baby blood I, I mean it's an american company so so yes the answer is yes the other problem with san marzano is that this might not be an issue at all soon because the farmers are dying off the farmers that are there right now are well into 60s, 70s, and 80s because their kids and grandkids don't want to work on the farm, right? We're living, we live in a highly industrial nation and at world, really, and there's more lucrative jobs out there than being a tomato farmer. And so really the biggest threat to the San Marzano in the sense of where it is, the soil, the water, the blood, the, all the stuff, not just the seeds because the seeds can be grown anywhere and are. Is that there's not going to, you know, by the time our kids are grown up, there may not even be any farmers left to farm San Marzano tomatoes in Naples. Well, this is also a problem from the older generations going, go to college, get an education. What are you doing? Yeah. And people are not, farmers that go to college do amazing work. And I'm not like, I'm not shitting on farmers who are like, listen, I got a college education to help with my family farm. And making it better and using yeah. more productive like all of that is amazing and great what ends up happening is that you have farmers like old school generational farmers that are like go to college get out of the industry you need to do something like real with your life and then they realize mm-hmm. there's nobody to take up with the family farm yeah wait this is my legacy yeah what or do they, i do or they don't want to adapt right they send their kids to college and they come back with all of these ideas on how to move into the future but these farms have been doing the same thing the same way for hundreds of years and you're like no no <laughs> we don't need to change them and update an irrigation system because we've been doing this this way for forever and it's fine so it's pushed back on i mean it's just generational issues everywhere really <laughs> what Change is hard. Change is hard. Uh, but what the hell does this have to do with marinara sauce, right? I have this very long conversation about this one type of tomato. You'll never guess it, right? But marinara was first invented where? In Naples, right? Maybe Sicily, but probably Naples. And while we don't know the exact moment of invention, evidence points to this region, especially from that 1694 recipe from Latini, as being undoubtedly the place where marinara sauce could have been made from the San Marzano, the original one, right? So you have San Marzano's in the region, you have marinara really being birthed out of this place. So it's really um, not a long shot to think that this is really what the original marinara flavor would have been is with these tomatoes. Interesting 
Marinara means seafaring or sailor style, meaning that the delicious sauce we most associate with spaghetti, pizza, and mozzarella sticks was an Italian merchant sailor's favorite thing to eat on long voyages. I can see it because it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, but I also keep getting this image of like the traditional like Disney pirate eating a giant plate of spaghetti. <laughs> and that can't be right. Arma mia. Arma mia. <laughs> <laughs> yes um somewhere between 1694 and 1790 tomato sauce went from the very very new world inspired salsa style to something that was put over pasta and it was in this year 1790 that the first recipe for spaghetti with tomato sauce was published in a cookbook Le Apicio Moderno by Francisco Lenardi now if you remember back to our honey episode, the ancient cookbook I used was Apicius, and this one is called The Modern Apicius. So no doubt trying to um, sort of elevating this author to, um, you know, a very high culinary status, calling himself the modern Apicius, which is also really cool that that's that's what it was. There's this continuity now between, you know, very ancient recipes and, and near <laughs> um, early modern ones. Not to be mistaken for the modern Prometheus, which is no, no, very different. Very, very different. Decidedly different. Um, so Lenardi is um, credited with being one of the first to use tomatoes in many dishes. He took credit for the invention of the Neapolitan tomato sauce. His recipe for tomato sauce is seedless tomatoes, onions, celery, garlic, and basil. And that's it. Now, that sounds amazing. It does sound really amazing. Now, the putting of this sauce on pasta didn't happen until the early 1800s. This apparently became popular because of pigs. Uh. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So in 10 Tomatoes to Change the World, he cites saying, up until the 19th century, ordinary people dressed their pasta with lard or pork fat because it was very good. In the middle, in, in the middle 19th century... The breed of pig changed. Black pigs were replaced by large white, landrace, or duroc breeds because those pigs, uh, the prosciutto was lighter in taste and the pigs grow much faster than a black pig. But their lard was no good. I have a funny lard story. It's a little I'm bit a, off topic. I want to hear the funny. It's not. It's a lard story. Go. <laughs> okay. So Aaron and I were deciding to make Nashville hot fried chicken based on the binging with babish recipe. Okay. Um, this was back when we lived in North Carolina. Okay. And we make it and we're like, we make it traditionally. So when you make the the spice blend, instead of tossing on like a dry rub, you add some of the hot oil that you cooked in. We cooked in lard because that's what it called for. Okay. And then you brush it onto the chicken. And Aaron takes two bites of it and then he sets down the he sets down the sandwich and he gives this really deep sigh. And he goes, this is really good. I was like, it is really good. I was having one that was not super spicy because I can't do super spicy and never have been mm -hmm. able to. And then with the most heartbroken, like upset voice you have ever heard in your life, he's like, it's because of the fucking lard. Because we cooked in lard. And he was just yeah. like, it's so, it's so good. <laughs> Stop it. Like, like everything it, it, about his grandparents made so much more sense to him in that exact moment. Got it. I was like, it's okay to like lard, Aaron, but I mean, he's also very healthy. He's also so very health conscious, and he's like, he's like, God he's, damn it, why is it so fucking good? 
Why is it so <laughs> tame? If this was awful, it would be easier. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why people cook in bacon fat. Like it's, it is delicious. I just bacon fat chocolate chip cookies are like the tits. <sighs> yeah. But I like, had, I had a friend in grad school who made um, candied bacon. Oh God, what were they? Were like ginger snaps, kind of, but they're oh ma- uh, maple cookies. That yeah. sounds delicious. Maple bacon cookies or something like that, and I they smelled amazing. But I was like, yeah, sorry, love bug, can't eat that. <laughs> I've made Aaron like spicy maple bacon for Bloody Marys before. Oh, nice. Yeah. He, yeah. uh, he's like you though he doesn't like them dipped nope he's nope, like nope, if nope. they put it in i'll eat it but otherwise i just have it I on the side just feel like it's gonna sog up my bacon and then you just end up with that like layer of grease on the top like no thanks i'm good have a solidified animal fat <gasps> on top. yeah no nope 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 not a big fan <laughs> not i love a- your face every time i say that solidified animal fat and she's just like Ugh. no thank you <laughs> Not interested. Yeah, so they switch out the the pigs and the lard is no good. So instead of using lard, they start to substitute other ingredients, trying different things on their pasta, and tomato sauce um, is a hit. So the first recipe for tomatoes on pasta is from Alexander Balthasar Laurent Grimaud de la Renere, which is just one person with lots of names. And His last name means the fox, so that's fun. <laughs> well, and if you can't tell, he's a French uh, French chef so in 1807 he published l'almanac yeah l'almanac de gourmand and there is a myth that catherine de medici having been married to well married off to the french king henry ii brought with her her italian palate and the mediterranean taste to basically invent french cuisine and again coming back to the medicis which is lovely but it's uh this story is a little too perfect in it's reality, a little too clean for world history. Absolutely. And so in reality, um, La Raniere probably took the idea of pasta and pomodoro, so tomato sauce, from the place in which both pasta and tomato sauce originated, from Naples. Which wouldn't have been surprising, considering it sounds like it was a real like agricultural culinary hub at the time. Oh, absolutely. And is today. Is, yeah, absolutely. And so a guide to Nepo- uh, Neapolitan home cooking published in 1837, included a recipe for baked vermicelli al pomodoro, and in 1891, Italian cookbook called Science in the Kitchen and the Art of Eating Well, a Practical Manual for Families, which we have to get because it's probably ridiculous and amazing. But they published two recipes of tomatoes and pasta. One included meat, but the other was a simple pasta al pomodoro, where the sauce is tomatoes, a sautéed onion that is discarded later, butter, olive oil, and grated cheese. That's it. That sounds, A, amazing, but B, why would you just sauté up an onion to discard it later? Yeah, I know. Just keep your onion in. But I don't know. It's what? uh, 1891. They don't have immersion blenders. Maybe it was just too hard. Oh, my God. (laughs) But you know to cook an onion until it's translucent. like Yeah, yeah. Come on, guys. Yep. Um, but this was also, this recipe was uh, suggested to eat over short pasta like penne. So gotcha. one uh, one form of marinara has even has made its way into the history of North Africa. The tomato, no doubt, came to Africa far before World War II. Um, in fact, it predates World War II by 100 years. And um, even though 
like there's no actual record. One of the earliest records of tomatoes in North Africa is from 1839 in Liberia. Um, oh boy, Liberia. Yes. And Liberia had just been founded as a settlement for freed um, American slaves and freeborn black people. And this suggests that, uh, according to Alexander, that the intriguing possibility that tomatoes were introduced to Africa by former American slaves, possibly some of the same slaves who introduced the tomato to the southern United States. Sorry, it is wild to me. That America made a, like, they did a colonization. They did a colonialism. Did a colonialism. <laughs> they did a colonialism on Africa mm-hmm. just to create the settlement where they're like, we had to let you go. We're forced into giving you freedom. You're welcome, by the way. You want to go back to Africa? Here, we'll give you this colony so that you can do a colonialism for us yeah. in your old home. Because, like, all of Africa is the same, right? totally all of it absolutely it's one giant country yeah we didn't just pull you from like your west coast down like like by the horn and then just drop you off in north africa like those are yeah exactly (sighs) yeah and these are these very very different regions like liberia is not where we were taking people out of africa from no and like getting back to their homes would have been pretty much impossible at this point absolutely well yeah because you have you'd have to cross the sahara first of all it's not impossible especially in 1839 like people have been at that point had been crossing the sahara for a couple hundred years but it's certainly not fucking easy and after being a slave in the in the united states i certainly don't want to also have to transverse the fucking sahara yeah i'm not looking to be like malnourished and beaten regularly so that your like your health would be extremely poor post slavery oh yeah and and people are you're gonna hear the myth i'm from the south i heard it all the time you will often hear the myth of like the well-treated quote-unquote house slave there's a different word that they substitute in yeah this is a myth it is absolutely a myth the women because a lot of them were women yeah that were made into these quote-unquote well-treated house slaves were sex slaves yes they were kept in the house because they were the master's quote mistress yep mistress implies an agency they just straight up did not have but like that's the closest word we can use politely and it was was children that they had cleaning their house yes you have the smaller easier to control ones in the home versus adults yeah and then you put the adults in the field where then you brutalize them in new ways. It's disgusting. And, the whole... and sometimes the same old ways. Uh, yes. There, there are some serious, like, some serious accounts, like, post-Civil War that are just absolutely horrifying about the treatment of field slaves. And even, like, I say even, like, they had it any easier, but especially, like, kitchen workers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, kitchen slaves were treated absolutely horrendously. Do you guys remember in Harry Potter, we talked about this a little bit earlier this episode, or at least JK, where Dobby offhandedly says, oh yeah, I had to put my hands in the oven as a punishment. There are actual recorded evidence of slaves having to punish themselves in this kind of way, dipping their hands in hot oil or getting, or having to like burn themselves or break a bone or something as punishment or having it broken for them. But there's a special, there's a special kind of like 
psychological damage i think that comes from making somebody hurt themselves yeah and there's a special kind of hell for people who do that uh-huh and I hope I... so. i'm a jew i don't even believe in hell but if there is a hell it's absolutely reserved for people it's reserved for can... slave masters yeah. yeah yeah for sure if hell exists it's <laughs> yeah. for people that own slaves if you yes. owned another person you, you belong there absolutely and I know I mentioned a little bit earlier about World War II. So the World War II connection with North Africa and and uh, Marinera is because during that time when Mussolini is um, doing his own um, <laughs> colonization, he is bringing in Italian cuisine as a way to sort of pro-Italy, North Africa. He's trying to uh, Hellenize North Africa. Pretty much. And so specifically in Libya, there is an Italian-African fusion dish of spaghetti over an African crepe served with spicy meat marinara sauce. I need it. It sounds so good. And so it's just this interesting place where like an, a majority of the story takes place in Italy. There's, you know, American um, sort of capitalist issues with it. Uh, and then there's this sort of moment of colonization that even as the tomato has definitely a story of colonization, Marinara is not completely divorced from that same sort of uh, story of colonization. Of course it's not. Like, colonialists are going to bring their culture with them because they're trying to subsume another culture. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you can't do that if you go there empty-handed. Absolutely and one of, And one of the easiest ways to start eliminating culture from an area is to get rid of their food mm -hmm. and start replacing it with your own yep yeah because food is everything right the food is where we start and where we end yes so what does this have to do with marinara today right like how do we go from this story to where we can just make marinara or buy marinara right so the marinara industry globally is a 14 billion dollar industry Holy Two, shit. Yeah, 2.4 billion of that is from the US alone. The global market projections predict that the industry will grow over to 17 billion by 2027, and the growth of the market is due to the continued rise in popularity of pasta. So pasta has taken its place a lot uh, right alongside rice and other grains as a pantry staple. That along with casual dining chains like Olive Garden and pasta being popular amongst college students, the desire for the delicious tomato topping is no surprise. Today, marinara covers both vegetable and meat-based sauces for pasta and pizza, meat-based sauces being the fastest growing marinara style right now. Brands like uh, Berea, Bertoli, Congra, sorry, Canagra Brands, CSC Brands LP, Del Monte Foods, Frontier Corop, International Gourmet Specialties, uh, Miskin, America, No Limit, Trader Joe's are all amongst the most prominent in the market right now. And um, as companies move into the future, there's also a lot of concerns over global climate change and the effect of their industrialization, of industrialization and changes to the ways in which they produce. So the Grandview Research Review.com, which is an India and American research company that is licensed out of California, has noted some of the things that pasta companies or sorry, marinara companies are doing to 
uh, sort of lead the way into a new age of industrialization. So in November 2021, Campbell's, the soup company, right, announced its new science-based target, SBT, for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The science-based target initiative with specifies and supports best practices in carbon reduction. Also in November of the same year, Berea launched its uh, Berea Agri Bosco to describe the lies underlying all of the PARM-based uh, company products where sustainable agriculture coexists with nature. It's a celebration of Berea's place in the world, which focuses on high-quality, environmentally friendly products and raw resources. And in April 2022, Hemmer, a Brazilian food company, signed a deal with Kraft Heinz. These two companies came together to make a larger company, but also to make sure that they are um, also fighting global change and producing things in a better way. So that's kind of what's going on with Marinara now. Yeah, we go from something that's very Italy-based, Naples specifically, this whole issue with San Marzano's to literally a 14 billion dollar global industry of pasta eaters <laughs> i mean you literally saw me pull pasta or pizza sauce and diddlini out of my pantry and yeah. eat that the other day oh absolutely yeah and i mean it's everywhere right like uh spaghetti especially like just a you know dry pasta and a pre-canned marinara sauce that's in all i promise it's in at least 98 percent of american pantries yeah one of the things that i ran into when i was doing the research on marinara is there's a there's a difference between marinara and pizza sauce and when people are talking about marinara they are very it's very important that they make sure that people know that there's a difference so we're gonna have to talk a little bit about the difference between marinara and pizza sauce which okay marinara is cooked and um, is a thicker sauce because the water content has been evaporated out through cooking. It's often made with garlic, basil, basil, onion, and olive oil. Pizza sauce, however, is thinner and not cooked, not at least before going on the dough. And it is often a simple mix of pureed tomatoes, salt, pepper, and olive oil. So these differences here, well, I don't know, seems a little silly sometimes to be so intense on how it's written about. It's a difference, right? You wouldn't necessarily dip they your... They do matter. They, they do matter because you wouldn't necessarily want to dip your mozzarella stick into a pizza sauce. Not It'd be, necessarily. It would be very, very thin. And I, I don't think would have enough sort of, of a robust taste to it to really do what it's... What you're I mean, I have, I have seen like some New York pizza places do absolutely amazing like... They'll cook it for like 24 to 48 hours so that it's like a very robust sauce that has time on its side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't necessarily want to have just straight tomatoes and salt that have been cooked for a long time over marinara sauce. Well, and the pizza sauce isn't cooked, though. That's why it's thinner. Oh. So it's, it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, no, it's fine. It's just, it's just crushed up. So you keep all, you keep a majority, if not all of the liquid, add a little salt to it, little pepper, some olive oil, and that's it versus the marinara that would have been cooked down. That's why I like the uh, pizza sauce that America's Test Kitchen has. It's not cooked, but you remove as much of the liquid yeah. as you possibly can. And it has like these other elements of garlic and yeah. oregano. It was, and it, it was delicious. It is delicious. <laughs> it works uh, well as a dip and as a pizza sauce. Yeah, it so. did. 
Um, okay, so I've talked a bit ad nauseum over um, marinara sauce here. So how do we get from a pizza sauce that just has these really simple ingredients into it and even a marinara sauce that seems to have like, you know, garlic, basil, onion, olive oil to having an inclusion of a lot more herbs in it, right? I don't know. When we first started talking about this, it was like, oh, marinara sauce. And we're listing off all of these herbs that we associate or at least flavors that we associate. So I've talked about marinara sauce and literally have mentioned almost no herbs. So how do we get all the flavor that we associate with marinara and pizza sauce? Bertie, please tell me about all about Italian herb blend. Is it old? Is it new? Is it even Italian? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, Sammy, 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 Sammy. (laughs) Italian herbs. They're ubiquitous so much so that like everyone listening to this probably has a bottle or packet or jar unless it's our singular listener in italy you probably don't we'll get to there Mm -hmm. but they probably have one of these things in their spice cabinet and you know i'd love to tell you all about who created the first italian herb blend and why and how it was marketed and like what it's based on. Is it based on some ancient Mediterranean blend passed from mother to child, crossing generations and continents to end up in your loving hands? I really want to tell you all these things. I really, really would. Um, That's a pretty good indication that you're not. (laughs) Alas, you and I are both disappointed. I couldn't find shit on Italian herb blends origins. (laughs) I can't find who created the first one, who marketed it the first time in America or elsewhere why they did this, how they managed it, not shit, none, nothing that could be proved or had any more citation beyond, well, of course, that's how it happened, which is, as you and I know, fanciful bullshit and magical thinking. Absolutely is. I'm not going to call them out too hard because they did have a lot of really good information, but like Food Network mentions (laughs) that it's from an ancient Mediterranean blend, which makes sense because that's where all of these fucking herbs are from, but they don't cite their sources. Cite your source. Well, yeah. And then like, if you're, and then they don't tell you if it's a dry or fresh blend either. Like, no, they don't tell you if the, if the quote unquote ancient Mediterranean blend was dry or fresh or anything, or if it was like a Garni style thing, it, they don't mention anything. Okay. 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 Take I mean, a moment. Okay. <laughs> Breathe through the disappointment. Like I'm doing meditate on the frustration I went through trying to find this and understand how much I wanted to tear my own hair out. I believe it. I believe it. I have been up against um, a number of research topics that don't pan out the way we thought. So what did you find? All right. So now that we all understand, I didn't skip this bit, despite you, dear podcast (laughs) listeners, the actual Italian herb blend, what I can tell you is that there are six major players that make it a proper Italian herb blend TM. And those players are thyme, oregano, oregano's hot cousin majorum, marjoram? I don't know. Majorum is how I pronounce it, but I've heard marjoram as well. Yeah, it's just the marjoram, margarine thing. It's a whole thing. mm -hmm. Uh, Basil and Sam's absolute favorite ever, rosemary. I'm coming around to rosemary. I feel like we've we've had it. I think we've used it in almost every dish that we've made so far, which is, you know, not that many, but, and I haven't been upset by any of it. I think the reason why I I didn't like rosemary was because one of the first times I had it was in a cocktail and it was too much and Mm -hmm. just like dominated all of the other flavors. So really it was just like rosemary water. 
it yeah. is. And then the second time I had it from a, uh, it's a local restaurant here that I want to um, take you and, and Aaron to. Um, and I'm hoping that the potatoes are better than they were last time. Cause I think the cook that day just bombarded it. So it was um, like cubed roasted potatoes. And I think that they used rosemary like in the cooking process. So like not only did they, you know, roast the rosemary with the potatoes, but then there was also fresh rosemary over it. Right. And little to no salt. I would know. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. And like it, it just, it was too much. It was like, I don't know, I don't... just like chewing on rosemary and smelling and just like the whole dish, you know, and potatoes take on a lot of flavor because they're not particularly flavorful themselves and so i think they just sucked up all the rosemary i don't send food back i would send those potatoes back yeah well we brought it home so i was gonna Uh, take it back (laughs) yeah that's that's fair yeah okay all right but anyhow rosemary i'm coming around you're coming around to rosemary that's good that's good okay the b team that might get called in on Italian herb blends include garlic, sage, savory, fennel seeds, and even red pepper flakes. Like all of these might be found in a a blend that you will pull off your shelf. I love a red pepper flake. Me too. <laughs> I like to add it myself. Me too. Personally, but yeah. one of these that I found is, or two of these that I found are a lot more common are going to be garlic and savory in like your, your Italian herb blends. The one that I end up using most often has garlic, sage, and savory along with the A-team. Nice. Insert theme song here. <laughs> Anyways. I, th- I think sage could work well in an Italian blend. Yeah, it just turn- tends to be a bully. So yeah, like, it does. Gotta be a, a little, little careful. A little goes a long way. Sort of Speaking deal. of a little, I'm looking at my, my sage plant right now that I have in my little, you know... Um, the one with the leaf as big as your hand? Um, There are seven leaves bigger than my hand now it's time to (laughs) harvest yeah yeah i just gotta figure out what i'm gonna do with it i mean it's gonna be a brown butter sage sauce i just don't know what it's gonna go on pumpkin ravioli yeah or i was thinking of doing it over um uh like sweet potatoes like baked sweet potatoes and then doing that as the butter yeah like a sweet potato mash with a brown butter sage something and then the dill plant that's over there that dill plant is probably i don't know 10 11 inches tall and is very bushy (laughs) what's the dill with all these herbs (laughs) yeah i'm really excited i have a couple of um basil plants that seem to be like just starting that's the one i was really excited to grow because i eat basil like it's uh, like people it's 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 really funny that your oldest doesn't like pesto or basil really and you adore it (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like if I put it into stuff, she's fine. But yeah, when I've given her pesto, I think it's the color. Honestly, I don't even know <laughs> if it's the 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 taste it's, of it. It's the wrong shade of green. Although pesto is is a strong flavor. So and yeah, it's more. A... I'm just so mad. She used to be such like such an adventurous eater. We did. I know I've told you about this and whatever. Come at me, crazy moms on the interworlds. But we did baby led weaning. And she was the most amazing little adventurous eater in the world. And then all of a sudden she turned three and was like, nah, chicken nuggets. I was like, <laughs> so well, she's also in, she's also in pre-K she and is. like kids learn a lot from their peers at the time. Yes. Um, and I think a lot of it is just like, um, I don't know if it's a texture thing with her, but I think she's just, she get, um, she's a cautious child. 
and not like a scared kid, but like she wants to know what it is. She wants to know how it's made. She'll try anything that we cook together, which is great. And so that's been a way for me to get her to try new food. Although I do have to tell her that she can't try raw chicken. <laughs> um, she also wanted to try eggs the other day when we were cooking them and they were not cooked yet. And I was like, nope, like you can't. Nope, nope, we nope. can't eat raw egg here. Nope, not nope. <laughs> so, but like the fact that she's looking at a bowl of raw eggs and being like, "Can I taste it?" Like that's pretty that's adventurous. adventurous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. She'll come around. My youngest, though, he is—he's a bottomless pit. He'll eat just he's about a garbage anything. Disposal. He, I love it. He eats just about everything. But again, he's only two, so who knows if he becomes a picky baby in a year? He's gonna be my oh, little like not. sushi buddy for forever. Although both the kids like the sushi, but yeah. He's he's gonna be like mommy sushi. Yeah. Mommy yeah. sushi. Yeah. He'll be home like... he'll be home sick from school <laughs> in sushi. like the third grade and be like, yeah. Can I just have sushi? Yeah. You're like, I just, I just don't feel good. I want some egg drop soup. <laughs> it's a that's, move though. That's that's my thing. When I don't feel good, I just want egg drop soup. I like Jewish penicillin personally. It is a good one. It is a good one um okay so it's back on topic yes yes so we talked about what an italian herb blend will consist of will consist of let's talk about what it won't consist of um specifically lavender because lavender is found in herbs de province here in north america okay not in france where provincial herbs are actually from north america has lavender because i guess they're like yeah that's french and fancy as fuck I want to cook with flowers. Uh, got it. Okay. So Italian herb blend would be considered a provincial herb blend, meaning um, simple, right? Or of yeah. the land, easily acquired, not expensive. Yes. And when they put that together, they call it the herbe de province, right? For French yeah. culinary. For uh, qu- French cuisine. For qu- But it's for- different than Italian herb blend. Got it. And then when Americans get their hand on it and see that it's French and they have to make shit fancy, they're like, oh, we're going to put lavender in that because French cuisine is the fanciest of all cuisine. Correct. But then you realize that the French are saying this is the simplest of cuisine and it's not fancy. I really, truly want you to keep lavender out of my Italian or blend. I will keep lavender. I can promise you this is a birdie guarantee. I will keep lavender out of your Italian herb blend. Yeah, please keep lavender off of my pizza. Because fuck cooking with flowers if you're going to use Italian flavors. Yeah, no, no. Like you you can put lavender on a flatbread that has a very different flavor palette. Like, I don't know, a fruit and honey and something. But um, Or like in in sugar cookies. Mm -hmm. Lavender sugar cookies are great. Lavender lemonade is great. Yeah, I don't know. Lavender reminds me of my wedding, which is like nice and lovely and all, but does not remind me of my wedding food. It reminds me of my centerpieces and bouquet. And um, I went way crazy and I made my own centerpieces, which means that I took wine bottles and I painted like hodgepodge on them and I rolled them in dried lavender. So not only did the venue smell like lavender, but my house, because that's where I was making them. Smelled like lavender for a very long time, which again is lovely, but I just, I can't imagine. But it doesn't make you like drink mm, like yummy. It doesn't. I can't imagine like trying to drink like lavender Earl Grey and being like, oh, this smells like delicious. I'd be like, wow, that smells like, like my centerpiece. I love a lavender, I I love a lavender London fog. 
but that's because it's a very very subtle flavor Mm -hmm. i'm all for trying it i just am concerned that my first thought is not going to be food association which is hard to try to eat things that you don't have a food association with it's reasonable like trying to eat guinea pig there's a coffee shop right by the shul that has the lavender london fogs we should go at some point which one which one's right 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 the shul is it brew yeah it's brew. okay well because i didn't know if it was brew or if it was the uh thai tea place i don't think i've ever actually been to the thai tea place it's it's a place it's fine yeah it's fine all right it's okay i mean i don't i don't eat i don't drink boba Uh, sorry come for me the world especially any of my like uh uh university i must name the university any of my university students um they have no idea how i don't like boba but i don't um some people don't like drinking giant fish eggs guys yeah not okay not a big fan um and so like if you're gonna go to a place who is like more known for their boba than anything else like it's all right it's fine yeah, I didn't get the Thai tea there. I got a chai tea, and it was which is stupid. I got a tea tea because chai just means tea, and I should have gotten the Thai. Thai tea is amazing. Thai tea is awesome. Anywho, sorry, lavender. Back to lavender. Not sort of back to <laughs> not cooking with lavender. But you think with this herb blend that we've just discussed, there must be a ton of authentic Italian recipes that use it. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Oh, you poor sweet summer child. No. Oh, this Italian herb blend, the Italian herb blend TM we are talking about is super common in American cooking. Yeah. It's actually fairly popular everywhere in the world, but Italy. I'm pretty sure it's one of the longest standing beefs Italy has with Italian American cooking. I'm not counting out that San Marzano is bigger. This just might be older. I just I feel like this tracks though for American cooking because we kind of do that to all quote unquote exotic cuisines, right? Like we make them Americanized and we make them convenient. Well, and like I mean, I know this isn't the American dish, it's the British dish, but like we hail tikka masala as being like that's Indian food. Nowhere in fucking India are you gonna get tikka masala. Like that's that's a I mean you might now true but it's a european invention and it's popular here in the states and it's like coined as like authentic himalayan taste and you're like "Ah, sort of okay Eh. yeah Eh. and then but then if you eat something that is like the much more traditional dishes end up being less popular than say a tikka masala which is oh it's frustrating also curries as we know them today were created in the mughal empire not like and not in the Indian portion of the Mughal Empire. No, because the Mughal Empire was uh, Islamic. Yes. Yeah. So it was primarily in the Middle East. It did take over like parts of Northern India. You know this, but our listeners don't. Our listeners don't. So I'm just like, you came in, you took those flavors, you took them back to the Middle East, and you decided to make them into curries. Yep. And curries are delicious. Don't get me wrong. They're awesome. All right. I'm off my I'm off my curry soapbox and now I just want fucking curry again. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I feel like there's um both like a side for us to be disparaging of this process and be like, wow, you're taking something that is of a region and you're bastardizing it and you're still bl- like branding it as part of that region. And like there's a problem with that for sure to be like, this is this is the flavor of Italy when like in reality it's not. And 
to some degree is, you know, a cultural appropriation or cultural dilution. Like there's issues with that. But But it's also how cultural exchange works. It does. And right, the the places in which food comes into has to adapt to that region and the palate of the people there or it doesn't survive. Right. The ways in which the tomato was being used here isn't the way it's used in Italy. They took out the peppers. Right. One, because peppers aren't being grown in Italy. And two, it wasn't the flavor palette that they enjoyed. Right. It was like mm, the like that becomes something that is not indicative of or something that's sort of easily incorporated into the the palette that already exists there and so you omit something you change it up and now we consider you know marinara to be an italian thing when in reality those tomatoes even the san marzano are not indigenous to those regions no and like things like rutabagas and other like root vegetables aren't really going to be indigenous to the areas that we kind of associate with them now yeah like everybody thinks of potatoes with like ireland but Mm -hmm. potatoes are also new world they are yeah (laughs) they worked really well in ireland and uh, most of northern europe but i cannot wait to talk about potatoes because i get to talk about the quote-unquote irish potato famine also known as the irish holocaust yes i'm gonna have a great time with it yes Anywho, I feel like there's a couple of episodes where we're just going to have to like both do research and just like compare notes basically because I feel like we're just going to be so in love. Like potato might be one of those ones that we're like. That needs to be not a two for episode, but that needs to be like a, a joint episode. Yeah. 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 Because I think we both love the idea of doing it. And then one, we don't have to like, well, who gets it kind of a thing, which is weird. But also there's so much information on potatoes. That like even tomato could have been a a sort of co-opted subject where it's like, cool, I'm going to take this region, you take that region or time period or whatever, and like then compare notes kind of a thing. Yeah, but you found like the best book in the world on it. So at least from a reading standpoint, yes, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that the research is amazing too, but it was also really nice to read. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant is like, it's the best in that it had a really good research behind it and it's extremely readable. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, all of that to say that this is an Italian, like a legitimate herb blend here in the States. And it's extremely common, not just in Italian-American recipes, but in everyday Americana cuisine. Like my dad's meatloaf, like a lot of meatloaf recipes via Google, (laughs) they have Italian seasoning in them. Like pizza sauces often include it. Subway, Mm -hmm. once again, sorry, Subway. (laughs) No, I'm not sorry. You're a giant mega corporation. Subway lets you add it onto whatever sandwich your sad little heart desires in their lineup from hell. Um, yeah, but anytime I go to Subway, which is very rarely, but sometimes I do, you know that shit's going on it. Duh, because you <laughs> want to add actual flavor to yes. their sad, to my, cold, their sad cold cuts. Yeah, to my uh, yoga mat loaf. <laughs> I only it's eat it when I'm on. As- I only eat it when I'm on campus, and I don't want like hot food. I used to live basically on Subway's buffalo chicken and cheese flatbreads. Nice. When I was in training for the army, because it was like the one restaurant on post that was not just terrible. This is another one of those moments where like, we always joke that you married me. I married you because that is 100% what Topher would like. He's obsessed with any form of buffalo (laughs) chicken. Good, bad, frozen fresh 
chain restaurant on fries in a burger it doesn't matter oh i'm gonna make him uh my buffalo blue cheeseburger at some point then he doesn't like blue cheese he also doesn't like ranch (laughs) what does he eat with his fucking wings then that's it just the wings what a monster yeah he doesn't he he doesn't dip um i technically don't dip my wings into a sauce either i just eat it with whatever sauce but then i i eat my vegetables because i like to get my vegetables in um and then i also eat his vegetables because tover will eat like a carrot oh my god the the celery sticks with the ranch are like the best part of getting really crappy wings it's the most delicious part ever i will take a celery over ranch over like any day over carrots and ranch I'll take them both, but like well, yes. I prefer the celery. Yeah, me too. But, um, uh, but yeah, that's funny. We're just gonna have to get like really cheap wings one time. Oh, there's a really good bar near um, SDSU that I used to go to, and I'm sure it's divey and loud and obnoxious. But there's pool tables, and there's fifty cent wing Wednesdays. I wonder if it's still fifty cent wings. I'm well. Oh, good question. It's probably like a buck fifty a wing now. God, I hope not. They're not going to make any money on college students anymore. I mean, they're not going to make any money on anybody because food is so... Anyways, I'm not going to get on my... Stop getting on my soapbox. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But it's really easy to see why this Italian herb blend is so popular and so ubiquitous in American cuisine. Not just Italian-American, but straight-up American cuisine. It adds plenty of flavor without you having to do a ton of work. Which is really important in a culture like this one where we don't have a ton of time to cook or eat decent meals. And like that's really important to note is that we have created these convenience foods in our kitchens. And we talked about this on the pod before, but we've created these like basic workarounds to still get flavor into our foods because we don't have time. Mm-hmm. Like my my area of research interest is food deserts. And one of the big things that we talk about with food deserts is that people are already at stretch to their limits with their money and with their time. And even if you throw more money at them, the one thing that you cannot get more of is fucking time. Yeah. Like, we don't have time to make good meals. Anyways, sorry, I said I would get (laughs) off my soapbox and then immediately jump back on it. That's okay. But I pretty much always have at least a little bit of it in my cabinet, even though I really do prefer using fresh herbs when I can. Mm-hmm. Like in basically everything. When I'm making soups or stews, I will use fresh herbs over dried pretty much every time. But they have their place. They absolutely have their place. And like having them on hand means that even if I can't go get, you know, fresh rosemary and sage and thyme, which is like my major mix that I use for basically everything, that means I still have that available and I can still use it. So for the tasting on this mini sewed, I say mini soda, it's going to be one of our longer ones. It absolutely is. We made focaccia loaves. Okay, so. But our tasting. Yes, we did focaccia, which is what we used to dip into our marinara, which was so good. So good. Um, But we also used it to try to figure out the um, Italian herb blend, right? Yeah. To try to figure out sort of the, um, the strengths of it, I guess. Yeah, so one of them we did a focaccia topped with fresh herbs and the fresh herbs we used were oregano parsley basil rosemary and thyme and i know you're saying but wait where's the majorum uh that's because you can't find fresh majorum in the united states 
They just don't fucking sell it. Well, and it's so it's close. oregano's hot cousin. Yeah, like it's it's very closely related to oregano. It has a similar flavor palette. It's a little bit. I like to think it has a little bit more of a citrusy sort of finish to it than oregano does. But yeah, it's like stores aren't going to put them on shelves when people are buying oregano. I mean, they put parsley and Italian parsley on the same shelf. So yeah. There, there are holes in your logic there, but that is true. That is true. Also, uh, Italian parsley is the superior parsley. It has more parsley flavor. Yes, I don't. I, the other parsley just is. Uh, uh, meh. It tastes like roughage to me. Anyways. Well, it's also what we use during Passover, which is just our bitter herbs to remind us of our bitter, bitter time as slaves. <laughs> so maybe I'm salty, which is also funny because you dip them in salt water to remind us of the tears. That we cried in slavery. So we made that one with the fresh herbs. And then the other one had the dried herbs mixed into the dough itself. Yes. The dough or the, the focaccia that had the fresh herbs, I felt like was very good. I liked that the focaccia with the fresh herbs on it had kind of a, like a surprise in every taste. Because you were getting a different herb with every bite. So one would be a little more parsley. One had a little more basil. Plus the like roasty toasty of the of the herbs on there was really pleasant. But it the, was just very subtle. It was very subtle. And um, you really got more of the bread flavor. Which in reality is it's an olive oil bread. So not. It did have like an almost buttery crust on it. Like the crust on the outside was like super crisp. And it hit your tongue a lot like butter it had that like nice like soft mouth feel and like there was a lot of really good salt in there too yeah it didn't overpower it wasn't salty but you definitely got the like there is enough salt to make this just it was such a great snack and bread yeah absolutely i was still partial like if i had to choose between the two i liked the one with the italian herbs the dried herbs in it I did too. I think it needed a little bit more um, liquid, but it tasted like hella good pizza. It was yeah. a little bit more dense. So it was. I think a little bit more liquid, a little bit more olive oil in it. Yeah. I mean, we definitely could have gotten heavier on the olive oil. I mean, focaccia is all about like literally like just you might as well just dump your focaccia in olive oil. Just throw it in a vat and then you've got yourself a good focaccia. <laughs> yeah. um, it's just like, oh, you think you've done enough? Add a little more. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did like that one. I felt like the um the salt content was great. Uh it was a little bit denser, maybe a little bit like drier mouthfeel on the I would say, yeah, um, it's a little bit of a drier mouthfeel. But feel. we were dipping it into marinara, so it held up just fine. Like it didn't get soggy at all with the marinara. Not that it was on there long enough for it to even get soggy, but no. um, no, I think it held up well. It was a very good pizza bread. It would have been for so sure. It would be a fabulous garlic bread base. Yes. Like, yes. cut that shit in half, rub some, like, roasted garlic and some butter on there. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, maybe some Parmesan good. cheese if you're, like, being extra fancy. Yeah. I don't need I don't need cheese on my garlic bread to make it good garlic bread. No, I kind of prefer non-cheese garlic bread, but... So do I. That's so do just... I. And, of course, the, the, the husband is opposite. He's like, if it... If it could take cheese, put cheese on it. He's lactose intolerant, by the way. So that makes my life as his wife so exciting. Does he have the pills? Is he bad enough no. that he has the lactose pills? 
Would he uh, take them if he, he had them? He should take them. He does not take them. Although he has recently switched over recently. It's been a few months, but he has recently switched over to the lactose free milk, which is great because that fool will come home and drink like 24 ounces of milk. Good Lord. And, you know. You guys don't even shop at the commissary. That's an expensive, <laughs> it's that's an expensive after work drink right there yes yes drink it some is. alcohol like the rest of us yeah right oftentimes he'll make it into chocolate milk and i can kind of understand then but like there's days and don't get me wrong i i like a nice cold glass of milk too but like a, a glass is like eight ounces i don't i don't need a pint and a half of milk but yeah no he's he's a monster he, he loves milk the kids not so much I don't think likes milk at all. He was lactose. Oh, geez, I keep saying their names. My youngest was lactose intolerant when he was born. And so if I ate, like if I drank milk or if I ate things that were like very high in dairy products, then he would get, um, he'd have problems, stomach problems. My daughter likes milk with her cereal, but that's it. They don't drink like milk out of like, it's not it's not, it's not a priority in their nutritional map. No. And like, I was feeling bad for a while. Again, moms are going to come at moms if they want to. I don't care. But we do apple juice. And, you know, I was worried about the sugar content with that because it's a thing. But if you start looking at the sugar content of milk, especially whole milk, which is what pediatricians recommend you give to your kids, this is the same amount of fucking sugar. Yeah, it's all the other stuff and things in there that becomes an issue yeah and they're getting a bunch of fucking hormones and bullshit and really i don't know i'm like i get it i love cheese but like there's a part of me that's like i really just don't want to drink milk and that's that is totally fair and Uh, you let your kids take their own like yeah their own choices with their food for the most part and my daughter to be very honest with you she only drinks milk when she wants chocolate milk and if she has a choice she will ask for oat milk which is lovely that like my little four-year-old's like we go to Starbucks and she's like, can I get a chocolate milk? And I'm like, do you want like a box one? Or do you want one that they make? And she's like, I want one they make. Cause I want oat milk. I'm like Ugh. that's adorable. I love it. Um, and then I have to get like half the pumps and no whipped cream because that shit, she don't need all that shit. No, <laughs> there's like four pumps in a tall chocolate milk, a tall, a tall. That's like a quarter of the tall is just pumps yeah. of chocolate. Yeah. No, I was like, she needs like one and a half pumps of chocolate. And they're like, do you want whipped cream? Fuck no, I don't want whipped cream. Do you see her? She's four. No. <laughs> do you want me having to chase her through this sugar high? Well, and not and only the, that, but I'm like, why would I want subsequent like meltdowns? Yeah. I'm like, why would I want dairy whipped cream on a non-dairy drink? If they had like oat milk whipped cream. That's not that a thing. Was a, that's not a thing. If that was a thing, that would be amazing. Yeah. I think that you would absolutely have to add a th- thickener to that i feel like you'd have to well yeah i've tried to froth dairy substitutes they don't they don't foam they don't thicken up because i'm a coffee whore fluffy oat milk whipped cream is a thing it has three less than three and a half stars yeah uh, that sounds that sounds about right because it probably has some sort of like thick water something to it it has coconut oil in it Mm. yeah then it's not going to taste like milk it's going to taste like coconut. <laughs> Absolutely. And coconut oil at that, which is fine. But like, I don't really want coconut oil in my coffee, says the person who only drinks decaf anyways, which is also an abomination. Yeah, but you do that because you're like, I can't 
yeah, I can't, I can't do caffeine anymore. I used to be able to do caffeine, like not a problem. I drink like a pot of coffee and go take a nap. I had like the adverse re- reaction to caffeine. I would just be like, well, I'm sleepy now. I'm nice and comfy. And then I got pregnant and they say, don't drink coffee or caffeine. So I cut all my caffeine and my body said, yeah, we don't need that anymore. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> and so when I do drink it, I get so fucking jittery that I'm like, oh, this is a panic attack. <laughs> so we'll just, we'll just stick to my, my decaf. Meanwhile, podcast listener, I am also, I am currently pregnant. And I'm like, if I don't get caffeine by 9 a.m., I am going to have a migraine today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It took a while to switch off. It took a long while to switch off. I think I was well into my second trimester when I was like finally not doing any caffeine anymore when I was pregnant with the first one. This one back here, I'm really excited about this drink. This drink here in our beautiful History Between Bites cups is what I am now dubbing a cha-cha? The hell is chai that? Chai-cha? A cha-cha? It is half matcha, half chai. <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> also, I was really obnoxious. So the this is this is how crazy we are with food. So my dear, beautiful husband got me matcha powder. And I've already told you my complaint with this matcha powder. It already, it's pre-sugared. So it has granulated sugar in it already so you just like scoop it and go now my problem is that it's not matcha-y enough and so when I try to put the amount of matcha I would like in my drink it ends up being far too sweet so I have a tea strainer that is a fine mesh oh my god uh yeah I went through and um sieved out as many of the large granulated large it's granulated sugar um but it's bigger than powder so yeah excellent (laughs) Mm-hmm. excellent 10 out of 10 no notes yeah 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 so i have a de-sugared sweet matcha because you know like you can't de-sugar all of it but it was better you can't unsugar it but you can de-sugar yeah, yeah yeah you can decrease the sugar content you just can't remove all of the sugar content but it was much better and it holds me over like i'll use it i don't want to put it to waste and it'll hold me over till i go to trader joe's this weekend and get like real matcha there you go all right because I'm, so... I'm a person that shops at trader joe's now it's so fucking weird Anywho, you are a Jew. Uh, yeah, I know, right? I converted. I got the gut, and I got a fucking. Uh, now I go to Trader Joe's. You, you, they need a rewards program. They like, do. They do. They need a it, rewards program, and it just needs to be like if you check a box that says you're a Jew, you get all of the promotional shit for like restaurant yeah. and stuff. Yeah, you get like a Minch coupon. <laughs> I love it. You're a member of the tribe. You're a member of TJ's. Let's go. <laughs> love it i'm gonna take you to the trader joe's in la jolla it is wild so it's attached to a ralph's what's not attached to but like it's in the same parking lot at shopping center as a ralph's and the ralph's there has a huge kosher section including like a kosher deli and butcher and all the stuff that's where i go when i am gonna buy kosher that's where i'll go um and we should go we'll just make like a jewish experience of it like you feel trip yeah, you've been to synagogue, so new Jewish experience. I'm going to take you to Jewish restaurant, like sh- grocery store. Guys, my very first ever time going to shul for like a service was Rosh Hashanah. I She's jumped in idiot. deep in. Such an idiot. Oh my God. Any other Jewish listeners on here are going to be like, Oi, why? Why did you do that? Because um, I worked on Sundays and like yeah. literally this was the only time I had time off during the week that yeah. I was like, fuck it, I'll go. I didn't yeah. even get to go to Purim guys i wanted to go to Pearl. yeah i mean it's kind of similar to my um indoctrination into retail 
my retail job, I started retail at Forever 21 on Black Friday. Oh, you poor thing. Yeah. So, you know, same thing. You jumped Black in Fr- the deep end. With yeah. Feet. Yeah, exactly. At least you didn't start with Yom Kippur where you couldn't eat because you're psycho and wouldn't have eat. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you fasted on Yom Kippur. It wasn't intentional. I was just working on Yom Kippur. That is true. Yeah, no, I don't fast on Yom Kippur. I mean, I'm not going to this year. <laughs> I, well, so this last year was the first year that I was obligated to because it was the first year that I wasn't pregnant or nursing. And I made it to like noon. I was like, we're going to intermittent fast on Yom Kippur. It'll be fine. Um, but I can't, I can't go that long without food. I fucking lose my mind. But yeah, non-Jewish listeners, she says obligated, but with literally every single commandment, with the exception of, I think, like four of them, you can break it in the event of needing to take care of your own health. Yeah, for sure. Or save your life. And I'm, it's like gestational diabetes. So like the idea of fasting for 24 hours makes me want to cry. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, it's not about food. It's about blood sugar and the the migraine that will ensue from going that long. No, thank you. I would just have to be nocturnal for Yom Kippur. Yeah. I just, I, I stick to, um, not fun food. I figure like if I'm supposed to not eat at all, then I should not enjoy the eating. So I eat like, you know, not that I eat gross. I don't eat gross food. No, but I like, don't go out to a restaurant. Like I'll just eat something. Yeah. Like I'll eat like a PB and J and drink lots of water and then go back to service. That tracks. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. This is a really long episode about things. All this is going to get cut. It'd be great. Wonderful. We made a marinara sauce. We made two marinara we sauces. Made two marinara sauces. One of them was with Cinto with our good old, possibly San Marzano's. Who knows? They're uh, from the same valley. They have the same water, the same volcanic ash soil. The same seeds. All of it. Yep. Same seeds. Yep. They're San Marzano tomatoes, even if they're not certified San Marzano yeah. tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that one was the one that had basil in it already. Yes. Um, and then we used Pomodori, which is the other brand that does not say on it San Marzano explicitly, but on the picture of the tomato, it says SMT. Yeah. So, so they're, San, they're San Marzano style tomatoes, I guess. So they're San Marzano. They're a product. They're a U.S. product. So what they are is they're San Marzano seeds that mm-hmm. are farmed here in the United States. So they're farmed under similar conditions. I don't know if that means that they're putting up volcanic ash in there, I, I would assume. But they're it's the same seed, so it's the same plant. It's not just from it's just not from the region. So it's the same as like champagne versus sparkling wine, right? You can't call it champagne unless it's made in champ like in, in Champagne, France. But you can have the exact same recipe, but if it's made and bottled in the United States, it's a sparkling wine. So same thing. They can't call it a San Marzano because it's not from San Marzano. Yeah. The food industry, it's crazy because like I, like this was one of the ones that we were like, oh, this is stupid and silly and crazy. But like, this is a thing. Like I found a DOP. I, I sent you the picture. I, I found the DOP stamp on olive oil yeah. at Aldi yesterday. And it was an Aldi brand. It wasn't even like, in, but it was like an Aldi brand. It said that it was from Italy. It said extra virgin, which by the way, if you're not buying one that doesn't say extra virgin, good chances being cut with canola oil, but it had the DOP on there. And so I was like, well, that's cool. Like now I'm seeing that that's one thing I really love about this podcast. We're what, five episodes in and mm-hmm. I'm already seeing things differently. Like the honey that I was, that I talked about on episode two 
of being like the most delicious fucking wildflower honey, blah, 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 whatever. I just looked at it. It says honey blend. It's not even like from one area with like, it's not a, I don't know, proper it's honey because it's, it's a blend. A, it's not a single hive honey. It's not exactly. a single source honey. And depending upon who you ask, that makes it fake honey. Even though it's honey. Is it from a bee's ass? <laughs> yeah i'm sorry but if like yeah. that's that's a silly just i'm all about like getting really quality ingredients however there is something to be said for like there's a lot of classism involved with how these things come oh, yeah. together so Absolutely. like if you get an authentic champagne from the champagne region of france it is probably going to cost you more than almost any other like almost any other thing that you're going to get as far as like a sparkling wine yeah because it has that like oh this was actually from the champagne region of france and yada 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 and like the san marzano tomatoes you were looking up certified like consortium certified san marzano tomatoes and for like a pallet of them was almost 40 dollars. yeah yeah and it's like well and then the thing that's frustrating is like that side of it's frustrating where you're like wow way to mark it up because it's from the fucking region like it's just so it's like bureaucratic capitalist nonsense but the other side of that is they wouldn't have to do that if one if like they stopped with like worrying about where it's from but they also wouldn't have to do that if there wasn't so many counterfeiters out there food counterfeits and like food smuggling and food fraud is apparently a whole fucking thing that like like, the two billion dollar garlic like chinese garlic ring we talked about and like you know i get i know what fda is like the food and drug administration like i get that but like part of it is to make sure that the food that we have is like from the right places and it is what it is and whatever but the fda doesn't give two fucks about i mean they do but like they they're more worried about the drug side of it right like okay Well, they're also concerned about location that the food actually comes from and knowing where it comes from because there are diseases that are specific oh to yeah areas. there it's was like a... um i was watching i need to send you the youtube video that i was watching on it's like it's called like most fraudulent or most faked food or something like that it was really mm-hmm. interesting but yeah so i guess there was foods that contain certain ingredients that are legal in other countries but not legal here because they have like they're carcinogenic um or they have like you know birth defect rate associations with them but you know you're just like oh well it's just like the cheap jar of honey or it's the you know, the dollar store fucking tomato sauce or whatever. And then all of a sudden you realize like, oh, great. Now I got cancer because, you know, I bought the cheap shit. I'm That's not the... at all what's in it. Like coffee, there was like, it was being cut with all sorts. Literally, you could they used to cut coffee with dirt and sawdust. They cut it with chicory. It's yeah. a like yeah. a local cuisine sort of thing for Louisiana. Yeah. Um, but it, it still it, has a caffeine content and it's it, still... It's in um, coffee substitutes because I did it. I tried some different coffee substitutes when I was pregnant because yeah, whatever. I wanted to be crunchy, um, and chicory is one of the ones because that's a low caffeine content, so it can technically be marketed as decaf. Yeah, um, but let me tell you, it doesn't wood, taste the same. Wood chip water, it's not the same. No, not the same. Nope. <laughs> Joke for Californians out here. Um, I want to get Prop sixty five stickers when I go home and just slap them on everything. I want one on my car. Oh, I almost want to get like a Prop 65 like tattoo on me oh, when I'm not pregnant anymore. That's so fun. Yes. Pl- I mean, don't do the tattoo. That's a bit much, but that's hilarious. I'll get you. I'll get you a necklace. <laughs> that's prop just 65. like a, just Prop 65 stamp. Like you may or may not cause cancer. 
I'm known to the state of California to have uh, cancer-causing materials inside yes. of me. I mean, I can think of a few people that literally need that. They're pretty cancerous. <laughs> like, Oh, man. They're that, so that's, many. that's just our new thing. We're like, you need a Prop 65 stamp. You a cancerous bitch. <laughs> I, there are some people that need that tattooed backwards on their ass. Mm-hmm. Like... 100 percent um that's that's hilarious yeah i don't even think about it because i've been here for forever but yeah that's other places don't have that can you smoke in restaurants in the south no no that's a federal that's a federal regulation but yeah i remember when it was and i remember when it became a california law Mm -hmm. or whatever i remember when it became a thing and both of my parents smoked and it was wild how many people complained Oh my god! I we still get people to bitch. That's so nuts! I can't my, believe it. My last restaurant job, I worked front of house. This was right before COVID, so 2019. Okay. I had someone come in and ask if we had a smoking section because we're a bar. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "You're like, no. yeah, it's outside, fuck." Yeah, I was <laughs> like, "You can, you are more than welcome to sit outside. You got to order from the bar." Yeah. And they That's- got so mad. I'm like. Did you time travel here from 2001? Yeah, people like... are wild. Yeah. I remember because my parents were like, well, at least you can still drink. It's still, at least you can still smoke in the casinos. Um, Because, you know, I grew up by Laughlin in Vegas. And I was just like, oh, that what was the, like, what the fuck? The like, smoking in casinos was rough. We just had like a military ball. Yeah. Um, it was an early birthday celebration. Yeah. And, uh, and it it's, was uh it's, it's wild to just walk into a room that just smells like cigarette smoke yeah and you know that, that shit is everywhere although the casino here the one that they just made in hamul i think that's smoking free oh see that would be nice yeah That'd i've be actually nice. been told it's really nice that if we're going to do a staycation and that's where to go good to know or viejas one of those i don't know there's like three or four of them in the area there's there's a couple. I don't know. I kind of, I mean, I grew up with that. So like part of me is like a casino is a casino is a casino, but like, I'm also an adult and can do the casino things now, but I'm still like kind of a fat ass. So like the only thing that's worth doing anything at a casino is eating and drinking and sitting by a pool. <laughs> so mood. Yeah. I'm like, I can, I can do that at your house. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say the only thing I don't have is a pool in my backyard and we can just go to the pool in the neighborhood. Yeah. Right. I'm like, I can do that at my mother-in-law's house. As long as I'm doing the cooking, I know the food is good. Sorry. Sorry, love. She'll listen one day. It'll be fine. Anyways. Um, But yeah. Oh my God. We're cutting so much from this. this. I know. It's it's fine. It's fine. Um, This is why we never record before twos because we get all these side conversations out of the way. Exactly. Right. The the Cento one was delicious. I love that it had the basil already in it. I think that it made it taste a little bit deeper in flavor. The color was way deeper. Yeah, it was much, uh, much more red. Yes, where the Pomodori was like almost an orange color. It was. Um, it was like almost a bright orange. Not like a hazard orange, but like it, it almost looks like it had carrots blended into it. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, or it looks like I'm looking at like gala apple. My gala apples right now it was kind of that color. Yeah. So the pomodori sauce also handled um, the vinegar content and like allowed the the as the acidity to really come through. Yeah, I think yeah. that the cinto had a lot more of the garlic flavors that came through without being a bully. That is true. Because I remember having to you added a little bit more because uh, you added uh, red wine vinegar, right? Yeah. 
And you added more of it to the Cinto one than you did to the Pomodori one. Yes. Just um, trying to balance flavors and it worked really well. But like the Pomodori were already so naturally acidic. Yeah. I feel like you didn't add any, right? I added I added like a third of what I was supposed to. Got it. To the Pomodori. And then even the salt content, the Cinto one, we used a bit more salt. Because it needed a little bit more salt. And yeah. I think that was the basil sweetness kind of counteracting yeah. with the salt flavors. Yeah. Well, that wasn't an like issue with the bringing out Pomodori. the sweetness of the tomato. Yeah. 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 Which, I don't, you, if you're not salting your tomato, you're doing something wrong with your life. Always salt your tomatoes. Always. Always. Yeah. I mean, even the sandwich I made today, the tomatoes were salted by themselves. And then the, um, like the, the lettuce blend was salted as well. And then I built the salad, but like the sandwich up from there. I was like, I'm not like, you, it has to be in all these different places. And then it doesn't taste salty. It just say, tastes seasoned. Because. Because. Because the salt yes. is necessary. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, okay. Final thoughts, right? We, the, when we only used fresh, no, we used Italian or blend in both the marinaras, right? We did. Sorry. We've recorded this so many times. It's been a minute. <laughs> um yeah and I thought it was lovely I mean we had we had um we added garlic right fresh garlic Mm -hmm. um and then salts and the Italian herb blend I thought both of them were great I mean maybe it's my you know weak American palate but I I love an Italian herb blend me too so like I feel like they're just really really useful and they're an absolute staple in a kitchen they are I put them up there with like literally having salt in your kitchen like, if yes. you have salt and pepper and, like, an Italian herb blend, you can make flavorful food. Yeah. Salt, pepper, Italian herb blend, garlic, because I prefer to have garlic outside of my Italian herb blend, uh, like garlic powder. Yeah. And paprika, because I put paprika on everything. That's fair. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. The marinara sauces were delicious. Um, the difference between the uncertifiable certified San Marzano versus an American San Marzano, definitely... And I don't know if it was the basil that made it darker. I do think that the tomato flavor of the Cinto one seemed to be a lot more, have more depth to it and seem less um, sort of watered down than the Pomodori one. The Pomodori ones almost tasted like, they almost tasted like they had been ripened off of the vine. Yeah. Well, and maybe it's because they don't have the volcano. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Maybe it's the lack of volcanic ash. Like. They're like, they're not putting we're all not going to bring that sh- into it. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to bring that shit in from Mount St. Helen or God forbid Vesuvius. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they're good. I definitely wouldn't say not to buy them. I think no. both brands are very good, but if I was like from here on out, I, I feel like Cinto is going to be the one that I would lean more towards buying on a regular. I would make those. I would use those for like making a marinara sauce that I was dipping things into for like yeah. making a pizza. I'd go for the Pomodoris. That's true. Cause they were because- already a little bit lighter. They were already a little bit lighter and they were already like a little bit more acidic. So then you combine it with like the salt and the fat from like Parmesan and mozzarella and that's going to be fucking. That's true. Aces. Alrighty. So focaccia was amazing. If you're going to go with fresh herbs, go ahead and do that, but maybe do both. I think that next time we make focaccia, we can just do the dry and the fresh on the top. So it's pretty, but also tasty. Um, Add a a little bit more moisture, more olive oil. And add like some veggies on top too would be really good. Oh yeah. Yeah. We want to make some fancy ass focaccia. I want to do a fruit based focaccia too. Yes. Dates and honey brie and, and honey. Oh my God. You can't have brie right now. Fuck. Um, yeah. No, sorry, love. No, no 
soft cheeses. No unpasteurized soft cheeses. Yes. If I can find a pasteurized brie. Good luck with that. I know. The whole point of brie is that it's unpasteurized because it's got to get all moldy and shit. Yes. All right. Um, Okay. So next time we're doing mozzarella. Yes. Yeah. Hint, hint at things to come. So thanks, Bird, for hanging in for far too long with this episode and um, listening to me talk now two and a half times about. We always have interesting conversations around this, though. So that's good. We do. We do. Hopefully sound quality is good. Otherwise, I don't care. It's coming out even if it sounds like shit Um, because we're not recording again. No, no. I will be in the barrel. It's fine. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. We'll work it out. Um, Okie doke. So keep listening and Birdie, take it away. Stay hungry for history. History Between Bites is written, produced, and performed by Samantha Nelson and Birdie Mills. Music is by Michelle Mountain. Find us on Instagram at History Between Bites Pod and Facebook at History Between Bites. Coming soon is Harther Table, a new YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to never miss an episode and leave a review or rate us wherever you get your podcasts. History Between Bites is a product of History Between Bites LLC, all rights reserved 2023. pump and dump yeah oh that'll be fine you'll be fine we're not gonna get wasted it'll be in the afternoon we'll make it like a couple glasses of wine you've got like three hours of pumping you're not gonna get wasted no i'm just kidding (laughs) yeah you're going to only be able to drink like two glasses of wine and you're going to be wasted so we're not getting wasted (laughs) we'll each have two glasses of wine and i will drive home because i'll be fine and you will go to sleep perfect perfect